Hey, we're in a, uh, in a series, on a third week, in a series called Invited, which is a look into the book of Proverbs, not uh, looking at everything in Proverbs, but just a few key principles that come out of Proverbs. And this uh, uh, series is called Invited because what we saw in the week one was God wants us to understand wisdom, to have wisdom, and we see that wisdom says that wisdom has made a table, and wisdom invites us to come sit at the table and to learn and to grow and to bask in all the delicious wisdom that it has. And God wants us to learn. God wants us to grow and invites us to come sit at the table and learn and grow from him, from his word, that we might grow in wisdom and understanding. And it started off with, that begins with the fear of the Lord. That wisdom all starts with understanding who we are in relationship to God, having deep awe and respect for him. Last week we looked at a key principle that comes out of Proverbs, which is kind of our work ethic or and uh, our habits with money and finances. And today, we're going to look at wisdom that comes from Proverbs around making good decisions, how to make wise decisions. Now, you might be thinking right off the bat, who made the decision of having the young guy talk about how to make good decisions? (laughs) And let me tell you, that's the way the vacation schedule landed. Here we are, you're going to have to deal with it, all right? No, what we saw in chapter one of Proverbs, if you remember, is the, uh, the writer of Proverbs says that uh, wisdom in the book of Proverbs is for everyone. People who are wise can learn from it. Foolish people can learn from it. Young can learn from it. The simple can learn from it. Remember that out of Proverbs, it's pretty black and it's pretty white, that anyone can really open it up and learn from it. Now, I know that there's many of you here in the room that have uh, more years under your belt than I do, and you have more season uh, life uh, uh, under your belt, and if anything sounds out of place, I give you permission to heckle me and to shout me down, okay? If anything sounds like, no, this guy's, I've been there, I've done that, feel free, or in case you're afraid, you can always send me a nasty email, okay? That being said... uh, Let's begin, all right? Uh, I I looked at some research on how many decisions people make every day. And surprisingly, uh, adults make about 35,000 decisions a day. That's an astronomical number. Now, this is taking into account, like, do I put on short socks or tall socks? Or do I go in the left door or the right door? What time do I leave? You know, do I eat eggs or, you know, it's taking in every decision, but your brain is computing just thousands of decisions every day. And so we make a lot of decisions. And hopefully out of those 35,000 decisions we make every day, we make some good ones that, that we have, we get up to bat and we have some swings and we connect and we hit with some good decisions. Now out of those 35,000, you might not face like big pivotal decisions on a daily basis, but we all, no matter how old we are in this room, we know that at some point in life, and really many times in life, we are faced with big pivotal decisions that do change maybe the course of what your day is going to look like, 
or what your week's going to look like, or maybe even what the light, your life ahead is going to look like. And we want to get in the habit. We want to know how do we make wise decisions? How do we make good decisions? Because many of us, we've all made bad decisions before. And we know that we have regrets and we have things that we, wouldn't, we would do differently. And, and, and so maybe some of us want to take like a whole chapter out of life and tear it out and put it somewhere else because, you know, that was a chapter that I made some bad decisions. And we all have that. And so we've all probably asked this question before, and it's a super simple question. Many of you have probably asked it, but the answer to it is really hard, which is, here's the question. How do I make next time not be like last time. You ever asked that question or kind of a form of it? How do I make next time not be like last time? We've probably all asked that, but finding the answer to that can be really difficult and it can be confusing. And so I hope that today um, we'll maybe be able to shed a little bit of life on this and some light on it. Um, back when I was about 18, 19, I came up with this scheme that I could buy and sell cars off of Craigslist and make a bunch of cash. And um, at the time, Craigslist was kind of exploding and it kind of came out. And so there was a lot of things going on. A lot of people could make a lot of different money in that. So I decided I was going to do that. So I go and buy my first car. And I'll tell you the end of the whole story, which was I did kind of figure out how to buy and sell cars on Craigslist, use cars and sell them for a profit. You just don't make as much money as you think you would. But so here I go into my first experience. And uh, I find this car, and it's like low bottom blue book value is like 2000 And this guy was selling on Craigslist for $600. And I was like, I'm going to take this guy. Like, this is t- like taking candy from a baby, piece of cake. Buy it for 600 sell it for 2200 Like, I'm going to come out like a bandit, right? And so I, I go, and my wife at the time, uh, we weren't married yet. We were just dating. And Chantel is uh, like, oh, this is kind of exciting. But then the guy said, hey, I need you to meet me at night. And I'm like, at night? And he's like, yeah, like at 9 p.m. And Chantel's like, you shouldn't go. Like, that's, that's weird. And I was like, nah, I got this. And he's like, meet me at this location. And it was like the sketchy part of town, right? It's the part of town you wouldn't go to during the daytime. And she's like, don't go, don't go. And I'm like, babe, but I'm going to make a ton of money. And so I go, and the guy is like super sketchy, right? Like just red flags should have been going off left and right. And he's like, let's take it for a test drive. And Chantel's like, don't get out of the car. Don't get out of the car. Like, let's just drive away. And I'm like, ah, let's do it. We get in. And I mean, like, just from the get-go, there was all these signs that you don't buy the car, right? It, it looked in bad condition. It smelled like urine on the inside. And then, like, as we drove it, there was, like, this weird, nasty film that came out of the vents and, like, fogged everything up. And he was like, ah, it'll go away. Don't Just roll the window down. <laughs> and so... I end up in just super sketchy. Chantel's freaked out. She's scared. And then so I end up buying the car from the guy, 600 bucks. Bad decision, right? Bad decision. Come to find out, like, all things are, tons of stuff's right there. It's got a cracked heater cords, leaking radiator fluid, which is burning and then coming into the car and all this stuff that he had, like, had dogs living in it for a while. And it was just a bad deal. And if you would have seen me driving down the road when I had this Dodge Monaco, it was just a terrible car. I had two fans clipped in there that plugged into the cigarette lighter, and it was blowing on the windshield trying to make sure that, like, it didn't stay fogged up and the film wasn't there. And I was wearing a painter's mask as I drove around, <laughs> thinking, like, took it, took the guy, you know. Here's the worst part of the story is 
as I'm cleaning it out, because I get so frustrated, frustrated with the car, I'm just trying to sell it and I'm just trying to get rid of it. And um, I find in the back, under the seat, crumpled up the, the old bill of sale that whoever the guy I brought it from, how much he bought it for from the other guy, right? I open it up, the bill of sale, it's for $100. I had bought it for $600. The guy made $500 off of me. Bad decision, right? And you're probably sitting there thinking like, how could you ever do that? I don't know. When you're young, you make really bad decisions, right? It's late, it's dark, there's a scary guy. You've never bought a used car before, made a bad decision. I don't want to make poor decisions, and I'm sure you don't want to make poor decisions, especially things that are far more important than a rusty old car. And here's the great news is God doesn't want you to make poor decisions either. God actually wants you to be wise, and he wants you to make good decisions, and he actually wants to guide and direct our life. And that's maybe why even some of you come on Sundays, because you're just trying to figure out, what am I supposed to do with my life? What are good decisions I should be making? And as we make these decisions and as we go into how do I make a good decision, we have to take into account that God wants to lead and to guide us. So uh, what I want to do this morning is I want to look at one big overarching principle around good decision making, kind of a lifestyle and habit, just one a foundational principle that kind of overarches all of it. And then I want to look at, well, how do you make a decision when you're in the heat of the moment, right? When we have the pressures on and you maybe have a day, a week, a weekend to figure out and you have to make a decision now. Well, how do you do that? And how do you make a good and wise decision? So let me start with this, uh, this overarching principle. First thing is, remember, God wants to lead and guide and direct us. And a lot of times it's really hard to figure out, well, what is, how does God want to lead me? What does God want to do? Or maybe you've heard the, the phrase, like, it's God's will, this should happen. Or are you following God's will? And so trying to figure out, like, well, what's God's will for my life? What should I do? There's three things that we need to take into consideration. If you were to look up the, the will of God in the Bible, there'd be uh, three categories it would all fall under. The first one is called the providential will of God. The second one is the moral will of God. And the third is the personal will of God. Here's the providential will. And the providential will is as we go down this uh, road of life, the providential will is one of the guardrails on the side of the road that God has set up to help lead and to guide us. And the providential will are the things that he has already said in the Bible that he's going to do no matter what. Like, I'm going to send my son Jesus. That's something he was already going to do. There's nothing you could have done, I could have done to stop that or to change that. He's going to do it. Or we see things that he says like, I'm going to judge the world one day. Meaning you could pray as much as you want, like, God, please don't one day judge me. But he's already said he's going to do that. It's the providential will. It's things he's just going to do. That is the first guardrail. The second is the moral will of God. It's the other guardrail that God has set up to help us hone in as we navigate life. And the moral will of God are like the, the commands that he gives us, how we should live right, how we should follow him and, and uh, be in relationship with others. These are the things that he says like, don't live uh, in immorality, uh, the, the 
thou shalt this, thou shalt not this. It's all the things in the Bible that God says, this is how you live a moral life and a good life. This is how I want you to live. So those two guardrails, he sets those up so that it makes everything in between, which is the personal decisions, the personal will is trying to figure out the things that relate to me that are like, where should I go to college? Should I buy the car? Should I not buy the car? Should I marry them? Should I not marry them? Should I do this? That's that, that personal. And those are the things that we want to know, right? We want to know, should I make this decision? Should I not make this decision? And God frames it initially that you don't have to become any type of expert in theology or anything to know that there's the providential will and there's the moral will. And the more that we become familiar with the providential will, understanding the things that God is already going to do no matter what, and as we surrender ourselves to the moral will, the things that he's commanded us the way to live, it makes those decisions in between much easier. And as we navigate life and trying to figure out how, it's, as long as it's within those confines, it makes things a lot easier. So becoming familiar with this, it takes devotion, it takes prayer, it takes opening the word up and reading, it takes having people pour into you, it, has, it means going to church or taking a Bible course or whatever it may be, but you have to learn. It's not just going to come through revelation of our understanding what God has already written in his word. And so you have to learn. That takes time. And the moral will, the same thing. It takes time. As you surrender, as you learn those things and you surrender yourself to that, that is those guardrails that makes things a lot easier. That's why having a life group is really nice and where you learn, and especially if you're a new Christian. And as a new Christian, maybe you don't know all the things in the Bible that it says. And that's why having people around you who can help show you this, these are the guardrails. This is the moral will of God or this is the providential will of God. And you might be going outside the bounds of one of those. Having people around you, if you're a newer Christian, be able to illustrate what those are and help point those out in your life man, that is beneficial. And then as you learn and grow and as you become familiar and as you surrender yourself, it really does frame in the personal things much easier. And I want you to know that God is very interested in those personal things as well. He, he cares about the personal decisions that we have to make. But he also, give, he doesn't just give us things to consider. To, to, as you look at your options and if you have to make a decision, he doesn't just give you something to consider, which is like, oh, I got these two options here. And then God comes in and says, I want you to consider this third. And you go, hmm, yeah, I still think I'm going to go with option one. And God's like, all oh, right, well, you gave it your shot. You know, He doesn't just give us things to consider as a part of other decisions. When he speaks, he assumes obedience. So when we're taking into account the providential will or the moral will, when God speaks, he assumes obedience, not just consideration, not just uh, uh, contemplation, but he assumes that he will get full participation when he talks and when he speaks to us. He doesn't just give out information for us to think about. He gives us that so we will have full obedience. And God knows when we're sitting back and we're really just looking at all our options and hoping that God's option is maybe one of the better ones. And this is why Solomon wrote this in Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, this principle that comes out about how do you begin to make good decisions in life? This is what he writes. He says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways submit to him and he will make your path straight. God wants to make our path straight. 
He wants to make it clear. And he sets up those guardrails in order for us to be able to know what the path is. But then he says you must trust in him with all your heart. You can't lean on your own understanding. Your own, you can't just take in more and more information. You must submit to him. And when you get to the point where you're ready to submit, that's when God says, I will make your path straight. So in all your ways you do know about him, this is another way to think about it, in all your ways you do know about him, follow him. And then he says, I will direct you. Surrendering to the known will, the things you do know about God, it paves the way to the discovery of the not known. Meaning this, I think this, this takes pressure off us a little bit. And the sense of we're all on, uh, uh, we've all been following Jesus at, for a different amount of time. Some of you, you maybe never have before. And some of you are brand new. And some of you have been following God your entire life. And you have, you know, 50, 60, 70 years under your belt or, or longer of following God. But what he says here is, in all the ways that you do know how to follow me, follow me and submit those things to me, and then I'll make your path straight. That means that if you're a brand new Christian and you just know one, two, and three, or maybe you just know one, it's in all your ways, follow me, submit that, and then I'll lay out more and more and more. I think it takes a little pressure off us because you don't have to know the entire Bible and everything it says from start to finish and all the details and all the theology and all this stuff to then all of a sudden know God's will. He just says, in all your ways that you do know, follow me. Because we would really like to just sit back and go like, God, I'd love to do your will, but can you show it to me first? And then I'll make a good decision. We would like to do that, but what God says is, in the ways that you do know how to follow me, follow me, and then I'll continue to make your path straight. One of my favorite Christian authors, his name is Philip Yancey. This is what he writes on this. Just a simple quote. He says, I do not get to know God and then do his will. I get to know God by doing his will. I get to know God by doing his will. So it's by entering into the things you do know how to follow and submitting to those things that that is how you begin to understand his will. You don't uh, know, uh, it's not the other way around that we want to submit our ways, we want to submit our understanding, that God doesn't just want to give us more information, he wants submission. That as we submit first all our plans and hopes and desires and say, God, I submit this first. Before I take in any more information about my options, I'm submitting it all to you. That is the beginning of making any good decision. Now, as we look at um, what happens when you don't have a lot of information in front of you. And what happens when you don't have time to think and pray and, and take time to, you know, uh, uh, take a year or two or three, or I, I think of like a freshman or sophomore in high school, they're trying to figure out where do I go to college? And you have years to kind of figure that out and ask people and pray about it and open your Bible and all this stuff. And by the time that it comes around, usually the good options are right there. And a lot of times God might just say, it's one or the other, and either or, great, right? But what happens when the heat and the pressure is on? 
that you get the job offer that you didn't expect and you got the weekend to figure it out or a week to get back to them? What happens when it's something close and personal that you gotta make a really big decision about maybe a loved one or uh, uh, your fiance or your spouse and you come to know some information that is, that is damaging? What do you do with that stuff right then in that moment? Do you, go, do you go forward with the marriage? Do you not? I mean, what happens when we've all been there that you have the pressure is on, the heat is up, and you have to make a decision quickly. Well, now, how do you make a good decision? And I want to say first that the, the, the Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 submitting doesn't go out the window. We still submit. We, we still say, Lord, here's what I have. I'm submitting to you. Um, I'm trusting you. But then there's some key principles found in Proverbs and found all throughout the Bible of how you make those decisions. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at a, a, a story in the Old Testament of actually Solomon who wrote Proverbs. He was considered the wisest man of all. He wrote most of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. And his son, Rehoboam, a decision that he had to make that was going to change his life and change the future of Israel. And this decision he had that the pressure was on, the heat was up, how was he going to make it? We're going to look at the, some of the things he did well and some of the things that he did not do well. But a little quick backstory really quick is Israel's first king was King Saul, and then it went to King David, and then David's son Solomon, and now uh, this is the place we're at where Solomon's nearing the end of his life, and uh, Solomon, even though he was super wise, he disobeyed God, and he let God down, and so God was really disappointed at the end of Solomon's life, and he told him, essentially, you've disappointed me, you've disobeyed me, I'm going to end up splitting and dividing the kingdom up because of your disobedience. Now, because I promised King David uh, a certain portion of that, I'm going to keep uh, a certain portion intact of Israel, but the rest is going to be divided up, and it's actually going to happen after you die. And so at the same time, God sends a prophet to a man named Jeroboam and kind of tells him the same thing. Solomon hears about Jeroboam, and he's not happy about this because God had said essentially your people group, Jeroboam's people group, is going to rule a significant portion of the new divided kingdom. Solomon's not happy about this, so he goes and chases Jeroboam down. Jeroboam finds out about this, and he flees to Egypt. And then time passes, and Solomon dies. All the people, once Solomon dies, they are expecting his son, Rehoboam, not to be confused with Jeroboam, Rehoboam is going to be king. He's the rightful guy to be king. And so here we are where they come to him. Jeroboam finds out about this, that all these people are about to crown him as king. He comes out of the woodworks, and this is where we pick up in 1 Kings uh, chapter 12. Sound good? It says, Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone there to make him king. He was the rightful guy, Solomon's son. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon. He returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he had the whole assembly of Israel, went to Rehoboam and said to him. So he rounded up everyone, and they say to him, essentially, we want you to be king. Okay? He says, your father, though, put a heavy yoke on us. But now if you lighten the, heart, the, the, lighten the load, and if you lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke, that he put on us will serve you. So they kind of say, we want you to be king, but you need to make a decision that you're going to have to change the way you're, you be king in order for us to serve and love and follow you. So here's Rehoboam, 
and he has a decision he has to make. Because if he went along with these guys' plan, that if he was a more servant leader, a loving king, well, other neighboring uh, uh, people could have saw him as a weak king, and they could have wanted to come in and take over everything. So he had to decide, well, do I want to be considered a weak king to other people? But then if I don't agree with these people, well, they might not love me and serve me. So there's all these actual uh, uh, things going into place of his decision. It was going to change the way that Israel was run forever. And so here's Rehoboam, a young guy. He doesn't have the wisdom. He doesn't have the skill of his father, Solomon, who was a very wise guy. And so here, what does he do? The good thing is he was trained by his dad, Solomon. So you're actually going to see some of the principles found in Proverbs. Rehoboam just knows to do. And you think he's a really smart guy, but then we're going to read through the story. So first thing he does, he does a really smart thing. As he tells all the people, he says, Rehoboam answered, go away for three days and come back to me. So the people went away. First thing is he bought some time. This was a really good decision on Rehoboam's part because it allowed him to do the next thing he's about to do. That when you're faced with pressure and you're faced with time constraints, it's usually really smart to ask for a little bit more time so you can make a good decision. That's what Rehoboam does. Good move. And then he does probably the smartest thing he could have ever done. And he learned this from his father, in which we're going to see. It says, Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served with his father Solomon during his lifetime. He went to the older, wiser men who had served with Solomon. They knew how government worked. They knew how things took place. He went to them and said, What would your advice be to me? How should I answer these people? These were the wise guys who knew what they were doing. And they all replied, if today you will be servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. God gives really good godly advice through these older men to Rehoboam. And, and they, he gives uh, this good advice that he, he can take. And he goes, essentially, if you lay your life down, you become a servant leader. The people here, they will love you, they will follow you, and they will serve you. We've, we've served your father. We know how things work. You know, for a time maybe that worked, or a time it didn't, but here's how our advice would be to move forward. That was the last thing that Rehoboam did that was really smart. And then what happens is we see that God gives this good godly counsel through these wise men, and then he does something that changes his story forever, and it changes Israel forever. It says, but Rehoboam, in verse 8, rejected the advice of the elders that they had given him, and he consulted the young men who he had grown up with who were serving with him. And he asked, how would you advise me? How should I answer these people? And what they replied was essentially, you should be an even harsher king than your dad. What are those old guys telling you? Like, you need to be even more powerful than your dad was. And they tell him, uh, these people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us. But please make your yoke lighter. Now tell them my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid a heavy yoke on you. I will be even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Here's this decision that Rehoboam takes. And he takes the advice of the people he'd grown up with instead of the wise counsel. Because of that decision, Israel was never the same. 
And here we see this principle play out of the value to go to other people, wise people, for advice. And one of the primary ways that God speaks to us is through other people. It's, it's a spiritual thing to do to go to other people. And we're going to see this uh, that in which Solomon writes. Oftentimes, we are forced to make decisions that are above our head, that are too close and personal to us, or things that we don't have any experience dealing with. Maybe you're new into business and you have to make a decision that you don't know how the whole business market works and the economy and all this stuff, and you're forced to make this decision that you need people who know how to do it. Or you're uh, making a decision that's close and personal. It's hard to be objective when you're, it's close and personal. You need people that can speak into that. And the person who wrote the most on wisdom and counsel was Rehoboam's dad, who was Solomon. Here's a few things in which he said in Proverbs that you're kind of see why Rehoboam acted the way he did. Proverbs 15 uh, says this, plans fail for a lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. Proverbs uh, 12 says, the way of fools seem right to them, but the wise listen to advice. Proverbs 11 says, for lack of guidance, a nation falls, but victory is won through many advisors. And you can find many other places that Solomon writes about having wise counsel as a way that you make good decisions in which benefit your life and people around you. The wisest man in the world said, you need to bring, bring people in to help you make good decisions. And this is spiritual. It's right in the Bible. Go ask people who are wiser, smarter than you how to make a decision. Um, um, if you're faced with an option or decisions, sometimes all it takes is someone with like an average IQ and just a few extra years under their belt than you just to point out all the holes in the option that you're forced with. And then you go like, wow, I would have never thought of it that way. You know, I talk with a lot of people as a pastor, people trying to make decisions. And it's actually surprising to me how many people come in and when I'll ask them, have you ever, have you talked with anyone about this yet? And they say like, no, or like, I just talked with, I just talked with my, my best friend. You know, I just called my girlfriend up and we talked about it. It's surprising to me how many people don't do that. Or Christians love to say like, I just prayed about it. And praying's really good, don't get me wrong. But also the way God tells us that we succeed is through wise counsel. And then I'll talk with people sometimes and I'll ask them about this and then I'll see that they go talk with other wise people and it's like a light bulb clicks. That just one thing they say, it's like a light bulb clicks. It's like, yes, I get it. That we need good wise counsel. I barely choose my clothes without having wise counsel. <laughs> Chantel woke up in the bed this morning with me holding two shirts up going, huh, huh, huh? You know, going out to a restaurant, I can barely find a good restaurant without finding all the counsel found on Yelp. And we need wise counsel, especially when it comes to big decisions. And here was Rehoboam's problem, right? It wasn't that he didn't go seek wise counsel. It's that he didn't know what wise counsel was. That Rehoboam had followed Solomon's uh, writings and his training, but he didn't know who a wise person was. And let me help you really quick with finding ways to get wise people in your life. And here's some of the benefits that a wise person will do. One is wise people, they, all, they find ways to help you ask the right questions. They find ways to help you ask the right questions, which is questions like this. Am I being honest with myself or am I just deceiving myself? 
Because we have a propensity as human beings to talk ourselves into bad decisions, don't we? We have ways to justify any decision we think. And wise people help us ask the question, are you deceiving yourself here? Wise people also help us ask the question, what do I want my story to tell? Because usually wise people, they have a bigger picture in life. That it's not just about the the little details, but it's about the big picture. What do you want your life to tell? What story do you want to tell? And so wise people help us ask the questions, which option in front of you do you want to be a permanent part of your story? Which one of those do you want to be a permanent part of your story? Third thing is wise people help us understand tensions that may need consideration. You ever tried to go do something or make a decision and there's just a weird pit in your stomach? And you're trying to figure out why don't I want to buy this or why don't I want to do that? And there's a weird pit in your stomach. There's a tension that's there about a decision. You're like, why doesn't it just feel great? The wise people help us identify what that tension is. And is it something that you should move forward in or not? Because wise people can ask good questions like, well, can you afford it? Uh, yeah, I can. Well, have you checked the interest rate? Well, no. Does, how much does that affect it? Well, you know, we should probably look at that. Maybe that's a tension you feel. Or wise people just have a knack about them to help you understand the tension that you're feeling about not knowing what decision to make. And here's just big red flag, Okay. For young people, this one's especially for you, all right, is this, that if you're trying to make a decision and you don't go seek wise counsel because you already know what they're going to say, those are big warning flashes, right? <laughs> big warning, like, I'm not going to go ask mom. I already know what she's going to tell me. Bing, bing, right? Or like, I'm not going to go ask, you know, my pastor. I'm not going to go ask this person, whatever, because I already know what they're going to tell me. Bing, bing, probably a bad decision. You know, it's not, it's not, you know, all the time, but that's a big red flag that if you're not seeking counsel because you already know what the counsel is going to say. So how do we know who wise counsel is and who are the people you should look for? One is people who will help you identify questions like this, not just tell you, do this, do that. That can be really helpful too, but help you identify the process. Here's a few other things that we need to learn to listen carefully and establish boundaries of who we listen to, that we don't just listen to everyone. First thing is choose someone who's willing to tell you the truth because they have nothing to lose. And this is where we see in Rehoboam where he went wrong. He chose uh, people, his friends, and they had a lot to lose, which was their friendship. Typically, when, if you ask good friends uh, stuff, they have a lot to lose, which is your friendship with them. If they tell you something that's bad, they're usually going to tell you something that you just want to hear, or maybe they just don't know, so they'll just tell you whatever they think. And that you want to find people who are objective, that they have nothing to lose when they tell you the truth. Those are people you want to listen to. Second is you want to choose someone, uh, a person that their life is where you want to be in life. That you want to go to someone that when you look at them, you go, I want to be like you one day. And uh, the way your life looks, I want that. And so they have the map of how they've got there, the things they've done wrong, the things they've done right. And you want to choose someone who knows that map of how to get there. When Chantel and I were on sabbatical a few years ago, we were forced with, or faced with some big questions we were trying to answer. And so we went to some really trusted people. My father, my uncle, who's a really great mentor, uh, and then Chantel, both of her uncles who we dearly love and respect. 
all people that we look at their life and we're like, we would love to be where you're at one day. And you have the map of how to get there. And do they all talk with each other? Like, ah, what should we tell Nate and Chantel? Let's make sure we do this. And they all communicated? No, not at all. That when we went to them, one thing we heard out of each and every one of them was the way, one way that I got where I am today was through education. And both of us, we'd only had a, a few years of college under our belt, and all their advice, in one way or another, pointed to the fact you should consider going back to school. We came back, that's the very thing we did. Because we believe God spoke through that. Uh, third thing is this, is ask more than one person if you can. Don't just go to the same well every time. Ask more than one person if you can. Fourth, choose someone you know and choose someone you don't know as much. Fifth is this, go into these conversations sensitive that God might speak to you, that God might have something to say, that through wise counsel, God can speak. And if we'll be selective with who we ask and what we ask, God can use that. This is not an unspiritual path to go and seek wise counsel. It is one of the smartest things you can do when you need to make a decision, any decision, but especially when the heat is on. And remember that as we trust in the Lord with all our heart and we lean not on our own understanding, we submit things to God, God wants to make your path straight. His desire and his hope is to make it straight. And I believe that if we do these things, and if you think back to fearing God and we have a respect for him and we learn to work hard and, and manage money well, and then if we go ask really wise people in our life if we're doing those things, that kind of sounds like a recipe for success, doesn't it, a little bit? And as we do those things, I believe that next time won't be like next, or last time. Next time is gonna be God-orchestrated and God's path will be clear in your life as we seek wise counsel. Let's pray. God, we thank you, Lord, for who you are. God, thank you for what you do. Lord, we pray that you would bring people around us, that we might seek them. Lord, we love you for the ways that you guide us and you lead us. Lord, lead us all the days of our life, that we might make good decisions, that we would follow you, and we'd seek other people to bring around us. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. That's some good stuff from the young guy. <laughs> Although, frankly, I don't know that the whole uh, young guy, old guy thing is a distinction I want to pursue too much. I feel like I come down on the wrong side of that one. So let's just set that aside. Hey, uh, if you would like someone to pray with you, maybe you've got a decision to make and you just would like them to seek God's wisdom with you, or you've got something that needs a prayer, we're going to have a prayer team right over here that would love to meet with you and to pray with you. I'm going to be over here underneath this television monitor uh, to greet those who are new and newer in the church, just to say hi, to start that process of getting connected at First Connect. And so uh, God bless you. Have a great rest of your weekend.